I want to paint for you two pictures of sin. I want to paint for you two pictures of sin that illustrate how we respond to the isolating effects of sin. Two pictures that kind of show, that illustrate how we respond to the isolating effects of sin. The first picture is something uh, that some of you have probably heard before. I've told this story. It's a now sort of infamous story in my family, the infamous story of the great plastic missile heist. The great plastic missile heist. When I was about five, just before my brother uh, Dave was in the picture, uh, he's six years, years younger than me, we were living in Johnson City, and I remember quite vividly uh, a Saturday morning when I accompanied my mom to Sears at the Johnson City Mall. This was about uh, that time in the late 70s when these about foot-high plastic Japanese robots that sort of moved and made noises and shot things started to come on the market. They were just coming onto the toy scene. Uh, this was, for those of you who are children of the 80s, this was uh, just before Robocheck and Voltron and Transformers uh, and GoBots started to hit the scene. Um, so I thought that these little plastic foot-high robots were the coolest thing I'd ever seen. As a five-year-old kid walking into Sears, I thought, that's what I need to make my plans against the evil forces of Carter County uh, come to fruition. That's where we lived at the time. I was uh, living on Sparks Road, sort of uh, just in Carter County there off of Lisbeth and Highway. Well, um, of course, as soon as I began to, to form the words out of my mouth to ask my mom, I knew what the answer was. The answer, of course, was no, uh, that I couldn't have it. I knew she would say no by that age I already knew that there was no hope um, of getting, you know, foot-high robot. And I think that's what motivated my sort of frustration and anger at the time as a five-year-old thinking, surely a bunch of kids are going to come through and their mom or dad is going to give them this cool plastic Japanese foot-high robot that shoots missiles. Why can't I have it? And so um, probably because I knew I'd never see plastic robot man again, I decided... Uh, to permanently borrow one of the tiny little inch-long plastic missiles that shot out of this robot's shoulder. And uh, you may know me as the smiley preacher man on Sunday, but I actually steal plastic missiles uh, from robots. Um, the guilt, of course, as soon as I walked out the door, was too much to bear. And within minutes, my mom had me back at Sears, bawling in front of the manager, apologizing for being a thief and uh, I confessed my role in what now in the Wakefields is known as the Great Plastic Missile Heist. And I feel free to tell you about that sin. Because it's an inch long plastic missile that probably cost about three cents to make. Picture of sin number one. Picture of sin number two. A friend told me a few years ago about something that he saw at a pizza buffet once. He was there with his family, and he noticed over in the corner of the restaurant uh, a young lady, uh, an extremely obese woman who was about as wide as she was tall. And she was all along at this big, long table over in the corner. She was sort of, sort of hunched over, kind of leaning over the table, obviously 
trying to hide something. Uh, it was an intriguing sight, from, so my friend uh, sort of walked over and peeked to investigate further. He couldn't quite see what she was hiding, but when he got close enough, he could hardly believe what he saw. This, this poor woman was hunched over a pile of pizza that was easily over a foot high, he says. He said it was the kind of thing that you see in movie documentaries, uh, in movies or in documentaries, this, this poor woman sort of hunched over a foot high pile of pizza. Her body language said, this is a quote from him, he says, please, please don't look at me. Just leave me alone with my pizza. Just leave me alone. Which is a tragic picture. Picture number two. The truth is that sin isolates us so much, it distances us from God and from one another in such profound ways that we create a world where we are willing to share our little plastic missile sins freely. But we end up hiding our foot-high piles of pizza. Let me ask you a question. If you did something bad, if you did something uh, fairly scandalous, and it made the paper Saturday, would you show up at church Sunday? If you answered no, and I'm guessing most of you in your minds probably answered no, what does that say? about our view of the body of Christ? What does that say about our view of church? Someone once described the church as a place where they make bad people good and good people miserable. Listen to something I came across this week in a book that I just started reading this week. It's a great quote from a man named Larry Crabb. It says this, The future of the church... The future of the church depends on whether it develops true community. He says, we can get by for a while on size, skilled communication, programs to meet every need. But unless we sense that we belong to each other with our masks off, the vibrant church of today will become the powerless church of tomorrow. Stale, irrelevant, a place of pretense where sufferers suffer alone, where pressure generates conformity rather than the Spirit creating life. That's where the church is headed unless it focuses on community, on connection, on, on this sense that we have to be with one another in order to make it through life. That's what the body of Christ truly offers. What if, what if church, what if church was actually a family of restoration? What if church was a family of restoration, a relational community where instead of hiding from our failures, instead of 
hiding my foot high piles of pizza, we could own up to them safely. What if that's the kind of place the body of Christ was for us? A place where we could own up to them safely and with the love and the support of other people who fail, we could find healing and restoration. That would be a church people would want to be a part of. That would be a church that people would want to be a part of. And that is exactly what every one of us profoundly needs most out of life. Meaningful connection. Today we look at an example of someone who was disconnected. There's a lot that we'll have in common with King David as we look at him. But he's an example of someone who was disconnected because he did not have a safe place. King David, more than anything else, needed a context within which he could share his particular burden. We're not told all the reasons why, but we can tell by looking at what we look at today, the effects of it, that he didn't have that safe relational community. And we're talking about this in week one of four weeks of letting go, because if week one doesn't happen, if a safe place where we can talk about our foot-high piles of pizza, if that doesn't happen, then weeks two, three, and four can't likely happen in this context either. Weeks two, three, and four of beginning to let go of the things that we hold on to, letting go of the pain and the hurt and the anger, letting go of the worry and the fear and the bitterness and the things that continue to plague us and keep us from moving forward in our growth with Christ and in our growth with one another and keep us from having the kind of context and relationship within which our capacity for intimate relationships with one another can happen. Today we look at David. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll skip around to a few places here in 2 Samuel. We'll start at verse 1 here. Look at the beginning of this chapter in 2 Samuel. Starting here in verse 1. Let's read together. It says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. And all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. This is the introduction to the story of David and Bathsheba. One we've mostly here heard numerous times. But check this out after we read verse 1 here. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Then at the end of the verse it says, David remained at Jerusalem. So check this out. Something is already wrong here. The text is telling us that something's already wrong with David. In those days, kings didn't send out their troops without them. Kings went to the battle. That doesn't mean they were on the front lines, of course. They were kept safe in the back, giving orders. But David, instead of being on the battlefield, is back at the palace. So while the king sits around in leisure, his soldiers are out on the field. We don't know why yet, but the text is telling us already in verse 1 that something is wrong. So in verse 2, while the troops were on the battlefield, David stayed behind, uh, perhaps because he had planned this all along. Look at verse 2. It says, it happened 
I think that's the text being a little uh, sarcastic, by the way. Hebrew has sort of that element in it sometimes. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. I wonder if he had seen Bathsheba before. If, if she was visible from the roof of his house, it's likely she had seen her. We know that he knows who she is because we know that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was one of David's mighty men. He was one of the 30 top warriors. So King David knew Uriah well already. So the hint, the hint is that David's going out to battle might not have been, uh, not going out to battle, I'm sorry, was not perhaps an accident. So David sent for her, look at verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, in other words, notice that someone's trying to actually warn David. This was some semblance of a community watching out for David. One said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? (laughs) David ignores the warning and goes ahead and commits adultery with Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant with David's son. So like we do, like we do when we're caught in sin or we're sinned against, isolation occurs. David finds some fig leaves and he begins to hide. He comes up with a plan to cover his tracks. He tries first to have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come home from the battlefield in hopes that he will sleep with her so it will look like the baby might be Uriah's. But Uriah, of course, is too honorable for that. He's too much a man of integrity. David even tries to get Uriah drunk, but Uriah refuses. Look at verse 9. Jump down there to verse 9. It says, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his own house. He was a man of his word who was on a mission to protect King David. And so it says, verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? (laughs) Check this out. Great speech from Uriah. Talk about killing with kindness. Look at verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark, meaning the ark of the covenant, which represented the presence of God, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. In other words, in temporary dwellings. They're not even at home. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? On the inside, David's probably sitting there going, yeah. Yeah, you should. Let's pick up the story in verse 14 where David turns to plan B. It says this, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Plan B, of course, as we've mentioned already and alluded to, is to have Uriah murdered. Notice the great lengths David goes to in order to cover up his sin. Uh, David is so hopelessly overwhelmed by his need to cover up his wrongdoings that he plots to take another person's life. 
And not just anyone, but the life of a faithful soldier. Uriah is like Navy SEAL operative. Special force kind of a guy. So we see in verses 16 through 18 here what became of David's scheme. It says this. Pick it up in verse 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell, meaning they died. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Think about that for a moment. When the message first arrived, uh, David expected to hear good news of the offing of Uriah, but instead he received the news that not only is Uriah dead, but also some of his other faithful warriors. Later on, David's own son would die. Now think about that moment for David here where he receives the news. There he is trying to cover up his infidelity with Bathsheba. And what he thought would be a relatively easy fix, I mean, he's the king, for goodness sakes, a relatively easy fix has now become mass murder. He's probably thinking to himself, it wasn't supposed to happen this way. And what we see in the picture of David's life here is that every point, at every point in this tragedy, David's sin isolates more. His sin has now separated him, obviously, from God, but also from everyone else. At this point, David is so deeply buried in sin that he feels like his only options are more lies and more deceit. His sin has affected many other lives. There is distance and there is pain in the wake of his sin that cannot be easily repaired. And this is where sin leads. Whether it's our sin or others' sin against us. Instead of confessing sin in the safety of of a community of grace, in the safety of a relationship of mutual love and affection and grace, where our love for one another comes from God's love for us. Instead of feeling able to confess it in a community, a safe community of grace, we cover it up. David may be an extreme example in a sense. How many of us are guilty of mass murder? None that I know. <laughs> but aren't we here? Didn't Jesus come and say, every one of us with every word, every careless word we speak, hold the same guilt as David's literal mass murder insofar as we isolate because of that sin? Instead of being able to confess it, to have people who would come alongside with him before he even got to the place of where he acted out on his desires for Bathsheba, 
Something didn't work right before that for David. In the wake of that kind of behavior and that sin against others and against us, there is not easily or quickly resolution. And it's not going to happen on one Sunday for us. But there is hurt and there is pain for all parties involved. Even for David. Friends, the cry of the human heart, the cry of the human heart is what do I do with this sin? What do I do with this sin? (laughs) What we do, friends, instead of the intimacy of a relationship with God and with one another where it can be dealt with, what we do is we build for ourselves an alternate reality that disconnects us from God and from one another. David, in his example here, David was so isolated in his sin that it took God sending a prophet, Nathan, in Second Samuel 12, to corner David. So here's my question. What if David had already been part of a safe and loving community? What if he hadn't been alone or at war where he was supposed to be? Somewhere along the line, David became isolated from the very community, from the very relationships that could have seen and he could have listened to before he began to act on his sinful desire. Friends, you don't need me to tell you that life is hard. In our moments of clarity, we all must admit our struggles with sin We must name the many ways that we carry burdens even of others' sin against us. We have all experienced struggles from ourselves and from the sin of others that involve marital strife, financial hardship, depression, loneliness, addictions, anger, greed, pride, Vanity, gluttony. All of these are sins about which something must be done. Someone or something must take care of that sin. And one of the main lessons of the Christian life is the extent to which our own inadequacy doesn't even infinitely make up for that sin. And yet at the same time, having said that, knowing that, we continue to construct construct for ourselves relationships that manipulate, subconscious anger that motivates how we speak and how we behave the fears that drive how we interact with one another. Instead of of seeking opportunities to take care of it by ourselves, which is a bottomless pit of despair with no resolution, 
Instead of going solo, like our own selfish pride and self-righteous behavior thinks works, instead of listening to the lies of the deceiver who wants to keep you isolated in your sin, they don't know, he won't understand, she wouldn't care anyway, don't bother him with your problems, they don't have time to help you. Instead of giving in to that kind of self-righteous, solo, prideful living, instead of giving in to that isolation, those voices from the deceiver, the body of Christ is a place. This context is a place where we want to call each one of us to become someone who risks connection. Become someone who risks connection. Not because I'm telling you, but because Christ's blood is enough. Risk enough to trust God and to commit to becoming part of a community that connects around the grace of God preeminently. Immerse yourself in this truth. The good news of the gospel is the amazing truth that in Christ there is no foot-high pile of pizza that can keep us from His grace. Nothing you have, are, or will do can keep you from what Christ achieved on the cross. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. A cool verse here. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, it says, According to His great mercy, not according to our structures of twisting out of our relationships and behaviors, self-righteous things, but according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It says this, to an inheritance. We've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is what we must learn to preeminently place our trust in. This inheritance that from God that comes to us in Christ is the foundational element of connection with God that we must trust in first. And from that trust in God's work for us, we can risk. So when we don't risk, it's because we don't trust God. We can be we can be people who risk connection and intimacy with one another because God has already taken care of sin fully and finally in the cross. What keeps us from risking connection with one another is because I'm worried you can't handle my failures. I'm worried you won't like me. You're worried I won't be able to be the friend you need. I'm worried that this relationship horizontally will be based on all the ways that we expect one another to be the little capital Messiah. We could never be. 
and so we don't risk it. We can be people who risk connection. Because God has taken care of sin fully and finally in the cross. And you can't and I can't. So instead of curling up into a twisted little ball of isolation, I pray we become a people that risks connection with one another. Let those two words burn in your psyche this week. Risk connection. Risk connection. Because if we are people who are called to mirror the work of God, to become more more like Him, who do you think risked the most in His connection with us? Friends, our deepest need isn't to get on to doing more things and achieving more things and making more money and being more busy. Our deepest need is always connection. Our deepest need is always connection. Let's pray together.